Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Brian Murphy, and Eric Lopez with you here is, uh, well, Murph, are we going to have baseball or not? I mean, initially they couldn't even agree that there was going to be a season, and now they can't even agree on whether or not they've agreed that there will be a season. I like, like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, it's it's sort of changing with the wind. Uh, you know, that we had a, we had a hundred percent about a week ago, and then we didn't have a hundred percent about two days ago, and then it looked really bad, and now it looks maybe the most positive development we've had in three months uh, today. So, was it the commissioner knows? flew out to Arizona and met with Tony Clark, and then they were like, we talked, and uh, you know, they were like, oh, there's an agreement pending, and no, no agreement, there is no agreement. And, I'm pretty sure by the end of the by the time we're done recording this, Tony Clark is going to come out and say no. Actually, the commissioner did not fly out to Phoenix. <laughs> I know people about. probably want me to curse here, but I won't. It was a special one-off. Okay, all right. Well, it's the greatest well, intro in the history of the of all podcasts. I know. I, mean. I know. Yeah, that's why that's why we led with it in the title. Anyway, we are uh, <laughs> we are, this is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Uh, like we mentioned. Uh, we got a couple things on deck that we want to talk to you about uh, today. Specifically, um, we will be talking baseball uh, a little bit later with Kylie McDaniel, Brian Murphy, reaching out to UCF alum Kylie McDaniel. Uh, well, Eric, Eric, Eric Lopez reaching out. Brian Murphy just sort of doing the interview. But ah, Eric I see. Real, <laughs> Eric Lopez is the real hero. Eric Lopez reaching out to Kylie McDaniel. And getting, Thank you. And I, getting, I'm, I'm not a quit. I'm just going to say, you know, Murph interviewed Kylie McDaniel, and all of a sudden positive news came out of Major Baseball, Major League Baseball. I'm just saying. What a time. I think not. What a time to be alive. But we begin with some football news. Actually, a little bit of basketball news, too, which we can kind of touch upon. But um, the NCAA Division I Council has officially approved a preseason schedule. They're calling it a preseason schedule model. Uh, that uh, and uh, Brian, you got that up on the site right now. So it looks like we got some dates here. So, uh, so it, the tweet was obviously very vague because assumes the first game on September the fifth. Uh, the model begins summer access activities July thirteenth, um, in less than a month from now, and adds meetings and walkthroughs on July twenty fourth. Preseason practice begins August seventh. UCF is playing North Carolina on Friday, September fourth. At least that's what it's scheduled for. So, um. Based on what we could ascertain, that means that UCF schedule is uh, will begin one day earlier than that, Murph. So, uh, as far as I can, as far as we can tell. So, um, go ahead and give us the lowdown here. First of all, we got it. We've got a calendar, right? This is good news. We do have a, a framework, a road, a roadway toward a, you know toward the UC, uh, toward a UCF football season. We're basically we're basically on the road to UCF football. This point because we know the landmarks along the way uh and yes they, it does start in july like you said jeffrey the the, the proposal or what was what was approved assume that games started on september 5th however it's all based upon you know basically you know 20 it's, it, it's 20 the training camp needs to start 29 days before your first game because you actually have to go through those that 29 day preseason period before you play games, that is required, which is a thing I think people should be keep in mind here. Because if if for something if, some, if for some reason something happens to where teams have to close down practice or send athletes home and they they cannot meet that 29 day preseason period uh, limit, you can't play games yet. So just with that in the back of the mind, let's let's go and just say 
29 days before UCF's first game is August 6th. So that is when UCF will actually be allowed to hold their first training camp uh, practice, as, as people would know it. And then they have 25 practices within those 29 days. But before that, they will have two separate sessions, two segments of mandatory workouts. And for UCF, as I understand it, uh, it will start on July 12th. Through, and the first segment goes from July 12th through the 22nd. Now, for other teams, it starts on July 13th to the 23rd. But again, because UCF is playing the day before September 5th, they would get a move, the calendar moved up one day. So July, July 12th to the 22nd is your first summer access segment. And in this period, uh, you basically have mandatory workouts. So right now we're in voluntary workouts. Uh, kids came back on uh, June 1st to begin voluntary workouts on June 8th. Mandatory workouts for UCF would then start on July, July 12th. You would have weight training, conditioning, some film review. Uh, these are all, you know, you, you, and there's certain limits you can't exceed during this 11-day period. After those 11 days are up, you then move into more mandatory practice, more mandatory workouts, but they're adding in wa- walkthrough practices, unpadded walkthrough practices that you can actually use the football during the practices, and team meetings. Why are those two things significant? Because previously in the college football calendar, walkthrough practices with football and team meetings we're not a part of the summer, the summer sessions, the summer, uh, the summer um, access workouts. Right. But those are being implemented now to help teams sort of make up for the lost time uh, from the spring, right? The spring, yeah. During the spring football season, so they're they're basically putting in two more weeks, two more weeks of meetings, either one on ones or positionals or t- or full team, full team meetings, uh, and then also you can actually just go out and have like an actual practice and run run routes and stuff like that. They won't be padded until you get you know into august but those those things are put in now uh to help teams sort of bridge the gap from what they lost in the spring and so those two weeks that would start july 23rd to august 5th take you to august 6th starting the 29 day period in which ucf can hold 25 practices and that takes us to september 4th against north carolina so essentially the schedule is the same except for this sort of additional these additional segments in the beginning right in, in the month of right. july Otherwise, you would have basically, you know, workouts, film study, conditioning, stuff like that. Uh, and, and and but now you can have like full team meetings, and mm-hmm. you can actually practice with the ball, which you couldn't do before. So, get, yeah. get the footballs out of the room. We can't touch them. It's an NCAA <laughs> violation. Yes. Oh boy, this is so weird. But anyway, um, okay. So so this is good news. What do you have? You heard from uh, you know. Uh, uh, I know we haven't heard from Josh Heupel officially, but have you heard from any of the any of the coaches or any of the players about what they think about this or any of the staff at UCF? What's the what's the what's the vibe coming off of this right now? Are, are they thinking you know that are people happy about this? I'm I'm I have not heard like individually from anybody uh, who's reached out or have I reached out to them. Haven't heard back from anybody, but I do know two things. One, this was expected. I mean, if you've been following the news. You know, the NCAA Oversight Committee basically proposed this, put this out there last week, and it was all but it was all but expected that the NCAA D1 Council would pass it today, or excuse me, on Wednesday, which they did. So this is not a surprise, and I think they knew this was coming. And I think not even not even needing to talk to the players or, or knowing what their reaction is, you understand like you you have now these 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 uh, these mile markers and mm-hmm. and these guidelines for you know when we can do certain things. So it gives them a schedule. I mean, these kids are 
are, are, are about, you know, being on repetition and being regimented and having things to follow every day. And they haven't had that for three months. And we're getting closer to that as we get into actual football workouts and into training camp. Like, they want – I mean, obviously, they want that. It's what they've been basically – trained to do for years because they fought they, their whole lives they've been following a schedule and so now to have this back in their lives i think it was if nothing else i think it's comforting definitely creatures that have it all these guys but um all right so we've got that that worked out and that's obviously a good thing now the not so good news we've been seeing is that uh there have been uh positive tests uh for COVID 19 from several schools notably in the american um Obviously, UCF had three of the of the sixty players who showed up to this uh, voluntary workout period. Um, USF just announced that two of their players tested positive. Houston had a slew of players test positive. It was so bad that they actually just just canceled their workouts. This is, I think, the primary concern. Don't you think that, um, man? What's going to happen if all of a sudden guys start testing positive? Well, certainly. I mean, and that's the thing we don't know. And that's the thing, even when, even with this schedule out, you still don't know what could happen, you know, tomorrow or next week, like things could change. Um, and so what you want is what most schools have done is obviously test your players before they start doing anything strenuous and hopefully keep an eye on them. If they start showing symptoms and, and do temperature checks and, and, uh, sanitize, you know, hand sanitizer and, and, so that the problem with Houston, though, is they didn't test their kids, all of their kids, once they came back on campus. They only tested symptomatic athletes, and then that leads that leads you to a problem because anybody who knows anything about the coronavirus now knows that certainly you can be asymptomatic and still have the virus and still spread it. Uh, so that was a that was a really 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 bad look uh, on Houston's part, and they got dragged for it, uh, rightfully so, because that is just either being uh, really ignorant, really lazy, really cheap. Uh, one of the three, two yeah. of the three, cross. I would imagine though that you know, I mean, obviously, I haven't you know had uh, haven't been keeping tabs on you know the entire nation, but they're probably not the only ones there, and I think that that's going to be the major concern going forward for all these programs, especially if something happens during the season. I think that's the biggest fear um, for everyone. Um, but again, we're just going to have to wait and see right now because yeah, that's... I don't think you can assume that you're not going to. You almost have to go with the. Uh, you're going to have people that test positive. You're not going to. Yeah. You're yeah. not going to have a clean, you know, clean slate no matter what. I think the key is being able to control it and contain. What you don't want is a situation where, you know, all of a sudden you got 15, 20 guys. Right. Uh, but that's going to be really not... hard to do if these guys are going to be basically, uh, um, you know, re- you know, in close quarters together, and. You know, I mean, they're college kids. You know, I mean, it's 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 going to be a really well, that's part of the tough problem. ask. The problem, you know, the big, the big problem in this, and I was talking to a Houston person. We argued about this. Is you could do all the protocols you want, but if you know, if a college kid's going to go out to a bar, and or is going to go out to a frat party, or and is not going to do social distancing, or is not, then you're you're that's going to happen. If they're going to see their, or if they're going to see their girlfriend who's not bound by those, you know, restrictions right, at all. Right, and that's the right. There's little like that's where you're going to run into some problems. So, how do you do that? You know, you could kind of control them. You could tell them, and I think schools are trying to tell them, hey, don't do this, do that. But you know, that hasn't stopped kids from doing what they do. And so, right. I, I think that's, I think that's the biggest hurdle that college uh, athletes have, and even young people. I mean, uh, earlier this week, Ezekiel Elliott tested positive and nobody everybody kind of shrugged because everybody's like yeah you know 
if we did a, if we if we thought of athletes that would possibly catch this, that everybody thought about Ezekiel, it would be at the top of the list because he goes out to parties and stuff like that. Well, oh, that, right. that's that's somewhat slanderous. <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, were you shocked? I don't think anybody was shocked. I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, I think that's why nobody was really like, whoa, I can't believe it. No, everybody's like, yeah, I can't see that. Based on his off-the-field off discretions from the past. <laughs> I mean, it's been documented. So, unfortunately, All that's right. the <laughs> Well, that's neither here nor there. We'll leave that for for the, our our SB Nation brethren at uh, blogging the boys to handle. But um, <laughs> they did. Uh, by the way, I want to talk about basketball too because this is another thing that they looked at. The uh, men's and women, the Division One Council also approved. Uh, uh, was it for men's and women's basketball too? A uh, mm-hmm. summer athletic activities model for both sports, but made an adjustment to recommended plans. This is from the NCAA's website, by the way. Um, the adopted plan extends the current rule, which allows voluntary athletic activities and up to eight hours of virtual non-physical activities through July 19th. The council will discuss whether additional activities should be allowed in that period at a meeting in the next few weeks. Beginning July 20th, required summer athletics activities may begin. It can last up to eight weeks or until the school's first day of classes or September 15th, whichever is earlier. Uh, required virtual non-physical activities can't continue to be conducted during this period. What in the hell does any of this mean, Murph? means that men's and women's basketball can start mandatory uh, practices on July 20th. Okay, cool. All right. Well, that's good. So at least... Workouts. I, I don't know if it's practices. I would say workouts. But yes, mandatory workouts. They're back in the gym and working out mandatory on July 20th. Yeah. So I, this takes us to the last thing I want to talk about before we take a break. Um, we, we still don't know what's going to become of fan participation in the games now but there's a bunch of reports out there about what some conferences are thinking about doing the pac 12 has come out with some things but again these are mostly these mostly seem to be like leaks of what we're thinking like they're test balloons is what they call them not leaks test balloons um and uh you know of like not having concessions for example not selling alcohol keeping the concourses clear during games um that's all fine and dandy, but you know, I mean, what do we think this is going to look like? Because there, there, I still think there's a possibility that we don't have no fans this year. It's up to the individual schools, or sometimes the conferences, but it could be up to the individual schools, or really your state regulations. I mean, again, yeah, we could have no fans, but we're asking questions that we really have no answer for right now. We are still in the we're still in the in the haze here. We have no idea. Yeah. I think that's the thing that a lot of fans are looking for right now. It's just what what are we going to do about us? What are schools going to do about the season ticket scenario? And that's where the financial squeeze is going to start coming in. Plus, we don't know what other sports are going to do. We don't know what volleyball is going to do. We don't know what soccer is going to do. It's awfully been quiet over there. Hasn't yeah, it, it has. It's, it's suspiciously quiet too. So I don't know, man. It's uh, you know, it's we're it's walking on the moon. We are completely. <laughs> We've never done this before. We don't know what's going to happen next. So, by the way, make sure all you student athletes out there don't play two two on two ping pong. The NBA has ruled that out in their uh, bubble. You cannot play uh, two on two ping pong. So two on uh, two that's one of the regulations. You can yeah. only play one on one ping pong. Correct. Yes, I'm not. Mean, I'm not being funny. By the way, this is in their uh, protocol. They I did see. I did see that. Yeah, but I just Over I was pages. It's yeah. phenomenal. Um entertaining it's good it's in depth and it's got a little bit of everything uh it's pretty wild including a uh, anonymous hotline you can call in and rat out somebody that is breaking the rule 
in the bubble. Man, how, what team is going to get ratted out the most? Can we do that in college? I think that maybe that's how we do it, right? Hey, the, the kid, the, I saw a kid there. He's our starting linebacker. Get him in. He's trying to get away. Get away. Get him. Are people going to rat out the Lakers the most? It's going to be the Lakers, right? Or is it going to be the uh, Heat? No, I think the Lakers are going to be the ones going to be ratting out people. Are you kidding me? They'll take, you know, they'll do whatever it takes to win a title. <laughs> those fans, those people. Right, Murph? <laughs> I mean, no, I, I, again, I have no idea why you're using this podcast to say <laughs> people really i mean first it was ezekiel elliott and now it's just a family <laughs> eric eric is eric, eric is just trying to flame everybody in sight right now it's, it really this podcast, it's bias. This, this podcast might get taken down after it's sued <laughs> allegedly i mean look ezekiel yeah please i don't i don't want to edit this <laughs> please don't forget to like sprinkle in allegedly all over the place allegedly please. Yes. Allegedly, the magic word. Uh, all right, all right. We're gonna take a break real quick. When we get back. Special guest. Uh, we're gonna have Kylie McDaniel from ESPN uh, joining us. He's uh, their baseball insider. Uh, did a lot of work on the MLB draft, and Brian Murphy was uh, uh, was able to call him up, courtesy of one Mister Eric Lopez, and uh, uh, discuss a little bit about college baseball and what's the what the future looks like. Uh, in that arena. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. All right. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff, Eric, and Brian with you here. Um, uh, let's switch gears over to baseball. And uh, last week was the MLB draft. Of course, uh, some good UCF news coming out of that with uh, uh, <clears throat> who the hell was it who got drafted? <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, this cannot air i know i know i know jeffrey hakinson at pick one jeffrey hakinson thank you and and then trevor holloway got signed to the yankees as an undrafted That's free first, all right let's predict let's do that again all right three two one welcome back to the black and gold batterette podcast jeff eric and brian with you let's turn our attention to uh baseball last week was the mlb draft uh, Jeffrey Hakinson of the uh, of UCF was, of course, picked by the Tampa Bay Rays in the fifth round. Also, after the draft, we got word that Trevor Holloway uh, has signed a free agency contract with the New York Yankees, which always makes me and Murph very happy. Uh, but uh, those guys weren't the only UCF alumni making news about the MLB draft. Uh, our next guest uh, was actually making news because he's a mover and shaker, Kylie McDaniel. Um, who you probably saw on ESPN's telecast of the MLB draft. Remember, he's a UCF alum and has worked his way up to being a uh, insider for uh, ESPN on uh, on Major League Baseball and the MLB draft in particular. Um, and uh, got his turn on the desk next to Carl Ravitch last week. And Murph, that was that was pretty exciting to see, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Well, uh, to be fair, you know, we didn't. I didn't really know. I was not aware that Kylie was. I mean, Kylie's a name that I've known for a while because I read fan graphs where he wrote for a, a couple of years. So I've known his name for a while, but I didn't know he was a UCF grad till a couple of weeks ago. So oh, it just was uh, this great sort of uh, confluence of events where, you know, it's the MLB draft. UCF gets a guy drafted. Let's have someone talk about that. Oh, who, who, who can we get? How about maybe the best guy in the business to talk about draft uh, drafted players and a UCF alum? <laughs> so really, that was the reason why I wanted to talk to Kylie. And we started our conversation with you know his time at UCF. He grew up in Tampa and then went to UCF, and I wanted to know how UCF helped him in his journey 
uh, to really what is now baseball media stardom. So for you, growing up in Tampa as well, did, how did UCF help you or factor in to your road to becoming where you are now? Uh, it was really beneficial, obviously, being in Florida where there's so much baseball going on, and I kind of grew up playing baseball, and, you know, wasn't very good, but obviously had, you know, affinity for it. Um, and so when I wanted to, it was basically after I read Moneyball was when I was a, a senior in high school, and I was like, all right, I want to, you know, this high school I went to, we had, like, you have to set up a, um, like, a senior internship to do for, like, about a month toward the end there. And all the you know guys wanted to do sports ones, and being in Tampa, it was like, oh, there's the Bucks and the Rays and the Lightning, and those were you know those are kind of like the the good ones everybody wanted to do. And there were plenty of us, so like it wasn't easy to get in there. And I didn't have like the best grades, but I was like, all right, I should probably you know be able to do okay in an interview. I should be able to get one of these. And then as I was reading it, I uh, me and a buddy of mine at school, we got the Bucks internship. And they had just won the Super Bowl. And so I was like, oh, I got the best one. And so we're, you know, they're walking around with the Lombardi trophy and, you know, all that sort of thing. And, you know, it seems like super successful. And my friends that were doing the race thing, I mean, we're just doing like, you know, little PR things here and there. It wasn't like that inclusive, but they were telling me what they were doing. And I was like, you know what? I like that better. Like, you know, I play baseball. I understand baseball more. I just read this book about how people that aren't good at baseball have a history of contributing to that. Like football, my high school didn't even have a football team. I have no experience doing anything there. And like, I know enough about the people that work in the front office and coaching and stuff like that. Like you have to have played at some level. That's just sort of the way it works. And it's like much more technical in a way that you need to be able to understand that. And I was like, this, you know, I might have gotten a slightly better internship, but I don't think that really fits for, you know, what I want to do. Um, but then luckily, like, uh, there were a lot of people at my church that were sort of tied to, like, the Yankees. And I had a bunch of, you know, other people in my life that I knew that were, like, sort of tangentially tied to them enough um, that I got in touch with some of the guys at the Rays and some of the guys at the Yankees and sort of, you know, pressed some people that I knew to kind of make a couple calls and that sort of thing. And between leaving high school in Tampa and then getting to UCF, um, by the end of my first, uh, my freshman year, I was able to like, you know, get some sit downs with people at the Yankees office in Tampa, which I didn't realize at the time. It's like everybody that's not, it, it doesn't have to be in New York was actually based in Tampa at the time. That's back when, you know, George Steinbrenner was still around and that was, he was the reason that that, that was the way it was set up. Um, and that's still largely the case. Um, and so by, with, by the time we got into my sophomore year at UCF, and I'm going to watch the baseball team. I'll go, you know, catch some high school games here and there, but I'm just starting to scout. So I don't really know who the right players are. I'm just kind of reading other people's rankings and uh, trying to get an idea of what's going around. I don't really know that many scouts. Like I'm just sort of showing up at places and hoping I'm in the right place. And then if no scouts are there, I know I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> so the UCF game is always safe. Cause like there's always be some guys there cause there's, you know, always somebody worth drafting and there's always a lot of scouts that lived in Orlando. So there was, there was a safe place to like go watch players, have an idea of what you're looking at and be able to meet, you know, some people and, you know, maybe some peek over someone's shoulder, there'd be a radar gun. You'd have some idea what you're looking at. And then by the time uh, I was after my sophomore year, I got the internship with the Yankees, which is just before it became very formalized where every team had very formal paid internships. Like they just didn't have that process. And so because I was bothering them <laughs> and seemed like, you know, semi-capable, even though I had like no skills or track record or anything to actually offer, um, they were like, okay, you can come in, you know, once or twice a week, a couple hours here and there and help us out. And by the end of my first day, they were like, okay, just come in every day for the rest of the summer. And then by the end of that first summer, they're like, okay, just come in every day for the summers you're in college. Um, and we'll, you know, give you free tickets when your team, when your family's in New York, we'll give you, um, you know, free lunch here and there. And we'll throw you like a per diem here and there. And, you know, all this stuff, they was like totally fine with me. Um, and that gave me like the opportunity to then, you know, learn about contracts and learn how stuff worked and meet a bunch of people that ended up being like my, 
foundational people in baseball that I knew that helped me along. And a lot of them spread out. There were multiple future GMs that were working that off time um, and multiple future agents. And so that then sort of entered me into, as I, you know, didn't get a full-time job with them after college, like having a foundation of like knowing people that worked, you know, internationally in the Dominican guys that work domestically agents, you know, front office people, a lot of people started getting promotions and moving around. And so everything sort of stemmed from that. And obviously being from Tampa and being at UCF, like kept me sort of in the mix and around stuff enough that I was also on my own meeting scouts and learning how to scout and things like that, which, you know, sort of, like I said, became like the foundation for all the stuff I was doing later. It's, it's like, it's like pitching location, location, location. Basically. Yeah, I mean, if I was if I was doing all the same stuff and I just happened to grow up in New Hampshire, it would have been way harder to do all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were there, now you are UCF class of t- 2008? Uh, 2007. 2007. So still, you were there at quite a good time for UCF baseball, a couple of 40 win seasons. You had the team that was one win away from uh, the Super Regional back in 20, uh, 2004, led by Drew Butera, who I think is still our yeah. most famous Major League Baseball alumni. Uh, what are your memories from UCF athletics or UCF baseball from those days? Uh, I mean, unfortunately, that was a pretty dark time for the football team. <laughs> so, so I was going to the Citrus Bowl during the, whatever it was, 17-game losing streak. Yeah. I was there for that. And obviously, all of the new facilities got built basically right after I left. Um, so that was, you know, maybe a little unlucky. Uh, but yeah, the baseball team, it was like they were always pretty good. They always had guys who were worth drafting. They were always, I guess there was like a conference switch somewhere around there. But they were always, you know, playing, you know, Tulane or Rice or, you know, getting a midweek game against Florida State. Like, there were always good players coming through. Um, and the other thing that like, I don't know, it was like, I guess a little underrated about scouting. It is pretty common to not know what the score is of the game by the end of the game, because you're focusing on like, you know, this college, like I remember I saw Brett Cecil when he was at Maryland, he pitched at UCF. And that was like one of the big things where like, I knew who that guy was. I knew he was going to go high in the draft. I knew there'd be tons of scouts there. Like that was like a good time for me to go to a game. Um, and it was like, you know, you're focusing on his pitches and what kind of quality they are and how is he throwing strikes and what his delivery look like and then talking to the scouts around you, going down the side to get a different angle on him. And then by the time you get to like, you know, it's sixth inning and you, you think you might get pulled soon, you're like, it could be three to one either way. It could be four to two, you know, five to one. Like I have no concept of what the score is because the score has almost nothing to do with what you're doing. You're trying to project what this guy's going to be five years from now, not who's going to win the game tonight. Like, who wins the game tonight is kind of irrelevant. Like, you know, and sometimes you want to know how a guy will respond to certain moments. And so obviously if it's a an important situation – um, you need to know like what the situation is. Like, oh, this guy moved the runner over. That was a very smart play by him. He's a heady player. But like the score itself is almost never relevant <laughs> to how you're scouting someone. Just knowing that it's, you know, close or it's not close or knowing that like, oh, it's two outs, so he should be doing this. Like that's kind of the only context you need for the game. So there was never really like the, and then also like in the scout section, like you're not supposed to be like cheering. <laughs> so, so like I didn't have like a really deep connection with like, oh, this game was, you know, magical. How like, you know, they scored the run and they beat, you know, Florida and it made a game, which I was there for a lot of games like that, where it was, you know, a team full of first and second round picks playing a UCF team that, didn't have a bunch of early round picks and they won and there were like a handful of those against big programs and Florida's like the ones that I remember but they're just yeah I didn't sort of interact with it on that sort of fan level because I was do I was going like so much deeper whereas when I was watching the football team it was sort of like all right I understand this as much as like an engaged fan does and so like the 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 score and how things go and outcomes and you know who was lucky who wasn't like that mattered much more to me because I wasn't engaging with it at that sort of like professional or aspiring to be professional level right that makes total sense um can you, and I know you've done this before, but uh, can you sort of give the the Cliff's Notes version from, again, you, you're working with the Yankees in, the, in those summer years when you were at UCF up to, you know, working with other clubs and, and basically your journey from then to now where you're basically 
seen as the uh, a scouting oracle, if it were. What is what has that journey been like? Yeah, make it clear, I did not use that term. Yes, yes, it's all my it's my words, correct. Yeah, so after the Yankees thing ended, it was pretty clear toward the end as I was graduating that there just wasn't a full time job for me. Um, there, um, and there was a number of reasons for that that were very clear. So, like, wasn't like a huge, like, you know, crushing defeat. Um, but then, is when you know I graduated, the recession hit. Uh, I was like doing stuff on my own blog that basically only people that knew me were reading, and I was doing it mostly so I could create a resume for myself. So, mm-hmm. like, if I send you a resume and you're like, there's a couple reports, but like, the kid sends you reports and you don't know the kid, like, you don't even know if the kid wrote the reports. So, like, it doesn't really mean anything. But I'm like, if I go to a game in the Florida State League and watch a minor leaguer. And write a report on. I remember I did one on like Jeremy Hallickson and one on Jeremy Jeffress, like guys that I knew look, you know, seem like big league types that people will have opinions about in the industry. I'll post a video of what I saw that day and then post the report. And so I did that for a couple of years. I started following the draft, but again, it's just like didn't really know what I was doing. It was just the guys I could see that I had like actual opinions on. And also, I wasn't a very good scout back then. I could just do like the paint by numbers. Like I could probably say what his grades are, but like I didn't know what a good delivery was. Like it was still it was still pretty early. Um, but as I was saying, like you keep like there was a couple scouts that were very helpful early on that they basically just recognized I was at the same game as them three times in a week, and so they just asked who I am, and then they knew who I was, and then they would talk to me, and then because other scouts would see me at other games talking to a guy that the guy that they knew they assumed I was fine so they started talking to me and I intentionally didn't do the whole like introduce myself to someone while they're working try to get them to give me their number it was just sort of like no I'm gonna wait for them to talk to me and I had luckily the benefit of waiting long enough that eventually everyone just sort of walked into me and asked who I was and then I became like sort of you know, accepted in some way, obviously not as like a professional, but while I was doing like the, you know, writing at websites and trying to, you know, that I had started or, you know, barely getting paid, uh, I was selling office supplies door to door for a while. Hmm. Obviously the economy was not so great. Mm-hmm. I was living at home for little parts of it. Like it was not a fantastic run for me, but it was like sort of essential that if I'm going to get good at a thing that I didn't know how to do very recently and just barely knew how to do it then, like I had to be putting in time like this. And so, you know, <laughs> obviously living at home and having like some financial support in that way was like very important and then once I got to I don't know like middle to late 20s then it was like you know went to the Dominican on my own people noticed that I wrote about it on the internet when that wasn't a thing that was happening for baseball prospectus and I was working for Kevin Goldstein who eventually you know became a scouting bigger with the Astros I parlayed that into an internship with the Orioles sorry I had to cough there uh, and then and then I went from there to Pittsburgh and did more of a database internship learned a lot of SQL and things like that. Uh, and then after a year there, uh, I started getting frustrated that now I've done three internships. Everyone told me I did a great job, but I couldn't get a full-time job. And so now it looks like I have three internships that failed on my resume. And I was like, don't like how this went. And so called around some people suggested, Hey, you should get in touch with Keith law and try to write for ESPN. So he was based in Arizona at the time. I was, uh, back home in Florida. Mm, sorry. Um, and so I started seeing players in Florida for the 2012 draft, which was, so it was that 2012 class was the year that I was year and change. I was at ESPN. It was like sort of, you know, part-time freelance, whatever it was, but I was basically at two games a day for almost an entire year. And Keith was helping me tell me like, Hey, go to this game. Guys are telling me this is where everyone's going to be. This is the guy to watch. ESPN gave me just enough of a travel budget that I could go, you know, all over the Southeast. I had just enough going on that I could basically crash on the couches of everyone I knew who had luckily spread around the Southeast. And that draft class was like Byron Buxton, uh, Addison Russell, Albert Mm. Amora, Mike Zanino. I got to see Florida all the time and see Kevin Gaussman from LSU come in. 
I drove all over Alabama, South Carolina. There was one day where I think I drove to see to see Corey Seager, and then drove from North Carolina to Miami in like eighteen hours uh, <laughs> to go see a kid in Miami the next day. And, it was, and guys like were at both games and flew, and they were like, "Did you drive that whole way?" I was like, "Yeah, no." They said they wouldn't cover flights, so I just drove. And they were like, "You are an animal." And so at that point, having the help of Keith, and then finally kind of get my feet underneath me as evaluator. And then being at a bunch of high-profile games and my work showing up on ESPN, it was like, oh, now the industry, people that knew me and were being nice to me were like, oh, okay, now he's like a person that like, you know, matters at some very low level. Um, and so that led to a full-time job, my first full-time job in baseball with uh, Scout.com, Fox Sports. I did that for a couple of years, and then that's when Fangraphs came calling. They wanted to get into prospect coverage and thought that I could be the person to do that. And so I got there, and in the two years and change that I was there, I think is when I went from a guy some people were aware of to like, oh, okay, he's good at this. And I felt like I was finally getting like good at scouting. That 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 year or two at ESPN, where I was at a game, you know, two games a day every day for a year, like that's when I went from just okay to knowing what I was looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once I was at Fangraphs, I moved to Atlanta. And then within a year of that, um, one of my former bosses, John Coblow, with the Yankees became the GM at the Braves. He hired me there. I was there for two and a half years. Uh, as you can look up and see, that didn't end super fantastically for most people involved. No. Uh, but, luck- but luckily, in the way that it wasn't ending super fantastically for everyone, I was looking to possibly go back to Fangraphs for writing because I thought that fit me a little bit better. And then he left at that point. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is a natural time to kind of leave. It won't seem like I you know, quit on it. Um, so I went back to Fangraphs, then obviously ESPN came along uh, in February. So mm-hmm. it, it, was, it, was, it was interesting because when I was with the team, I don't feel like I ever got treated fairly in the sense of I thought I was doing well as an intern. I couldn't get a full-time job. And then finally I got that full-time job with the Braves, and obviously things didn't go well in a couple different ways outside of my control. But every time I was on the writing side, I kept getting like sort of – like I was never at a place for more than two years because I kept sort of getting promoted in a way or recognized or you know whatever way my, my profile was rising. And I was like, I should probably notice the pattern here that like the internet slash the writing world lets me advance in a way that I feel like is you know fair in a way, give or take. And working for a team, for whatever reason, never seems to go the way I feel like it should, uh, even though people tell me I'm doing a good, good job. It just never really works out. So I was like, maybe I should go back to the place that like, seems to want me <laughs> in a way. And it's not like all 30 teams, you know, would not have treated me, you know, fairly or, you know, however you want to describe fairly. Obviously, it's a pretty um, subjective stance. But mm-hmm. uh, it just sort of became obvious that like the lifestyle and just the way that, you know, the politics and things, things like that were working out. It was just like, oh, I should be here. And I think it fits me better. And now I've scratched the edge of what is it like working for a team? I don't have to go do it just because I want to find out. Now I know what it's like. And now I can choose what I want. And the writing just hit me better. And then, of course, the other issue is then, you know, I get over two stents, like whatever it is, three, three years and change of fan graphs. Mm-hmm. And then ESPN comes. And so that was like another example of like, oh, I just keep sort of getting you know, promoted or improving or getting better or whatever it is, things just kind of work out when I'm on this side. Uh, and so I guess that's continued to happen. So can't, can't complain about that. And I think what the, the common thread through all of that is, you know, for those who, you know, are trying to get in the business too, it's, it's about, yeah, baseball can be, you know, baseball scouting sounds cool, but you got to really work at it. Like, yeah, you, sometimes you got to take those 18 hour drives from North Carolina to Miami. Like if you want to do this, it's, it's not sexy, but you got to, you got to show up. That's half the job. And you got to know, like you got to work. Well, yeah, and, lo- and looking back on it, like from, I don't know, about age 24, 25 or so until about 29, like there was about a four-year period there 
where I think most of what I'm doing now was like sort of like all those seeds were planted where it was, okay, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm getting some positive feedback. So I'm going to keep doing it. And I could go get a job and get an apartment and just sort of leave baseball behind. But I think I got a little more rope to play this out and see where it goes. And then I just threw myself in the deep end and basically had no life just going to games nonstop. And my friends were sort of like, I mean, is this going to work out? And my parents were like, I mean, it seems like he likes it. Like, I guess well, it, it was just sort of like, you know, luckily I had the, like I said, like the rope to continue doing it. Uh, but I was like, honestly, like before that Fox Sports job came along, it was like my first full-time job in baseball. I was like within a year of I was just going to quit. Because uh, it was just sort of like, I've been doing this since I was 19 and I'm now almost 29 and I haven't even been paid. Like, you know, I've never had benefits. I haven't mm-hmm. had like a real job before. Like there was a time where it's like at some point this is going to stop. And then I remember I talked to a scouting director about like a scouting job at one point right around then. And he was like, unfortunately, you went from not quite qualified to, I think, overqualified <laughs> to a point where you would be bored with a job to be an area <laughs> scout, which is like the entry level scouting job. Yeah. And I was like, you have no idea how frustrating that is to hear <laughs> that I was not worth your time. And then I became very quickly not worth your time in another way. Like it sounded like he was making up an excuse. But I think he was telling me that, like, he's like, I know you just well enough to know that you've improved a lot in the last year or two to a point where you went from, you know, not a candidate to not a candidate for a different reason. Just keep doing it. You're doing the right thing. Um, and I think he was right. But at the time when I'm just like scratching, clawing, trying to get a job, it's like, that's not what you want to hear is another excuse to not hire me. Yeah, no, I understand that. Um, so that brings you obviously to ESPN where you are an insider, but also really their lead analyst for their draft coverage last week. And so I want to get your thoughts if possible, on a couple of UCF players. One was the one UCF player who was drafted. It was Jeffrey Hakinson at 155 to the Rays, who, uh, you know, watching the coverage, it's too bad. Right when he was picked, the, the draft went to commercial, and then they came back, and they didn't really get to talk to him much about, about, much about him. What do you know about Jeffrey, and, uh, and what do you think about him? Uh, so he's an interesting reliever in that his, uh, his track man data, meaning, like, you know, the shape of his, uh, you know, tilt to his fastball, the breaking ball is sort of good. Things play up. The swing strike rates are very high. I was talking to an area scout uh, that liked him in the days leading up to the draft. And he was like, yeah, yeah, here's a guy that might be drafted in case he comes off. Like, here's like a nice rundown on him. Because, you know, like the maybe fifth rounder is never like the guy that people in my position are like focusing on, even at UCF. If I had a full season, I probably would have seen him or I would have mm-hmm. gone to a UCF game and somebody would have told me more about him. Um, but he was like, yeah, it's 9295. It's like pretty track man friendly, pretty good breaking ball. It's funky. He throws strikes, lots of swing strikes. But it's just the stuff isn't loud enough. There's not enough track record. Like, you just don't quite have all the things there. But in, like, a best-case scenario, like, this is roughly what guys that are middle relievers in the big leagues look like. So if you're in the fifth round, you need to cut a little money. I'm guessing he's probably under slot at that pick, mm-hmm. but not by a ton. Um, it's like, yeah, this guy, this guy looks like how big leaguers look. And the stuff is, you know, roughly what big leaguers have. And it's already sort of... Uh, you know, the way you don't have to like tweak him a lot. You don't have to like change his, you know, grip on his fastball or anything like that in a, in a meaningful way. So this guy, you know, definitely is a guy that in a normal draft, I think would have gotten a lot of attention uh, in, you know, rounds five and six, and then maybe even uh, rounds 10 through 15 as like an overslot guy that people really like. And then obviously this year, like a lot of teams were looking for college relievers to take underslot in the fifth round. So he just happened to be like the type of player that I think actually had more demand this year than he might've had in other years in, in terms of like up at that spot where he was taken. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, the Trevor Holloway, uh, what have you heard about him? He signed with the Yankees on Sunday. Um, have you heard anything? And what do you think about Trevor Holloway? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen him before. I know it's not huge velocity, but you know, some durability, some feel to pitch. Um, there's definitely been a, a collection of players like this where uh, Levi Thomas and Troy got um, drafted 
uh, under slot. I think it was like a little under 100000 in the fourth round by San Diego to save some money. And he's like, you know, four pitches, slightly above average or close to average stuff and just pitchability and funk and deception and things like that. And Holloway, I think, is just a slightly lesser version of that, where it's maybe fringe stuff instead of slightly above average stuff. Um, and, you know, throw strikes and, you know, if, if you think you can improve him a little bit, then there's a chance that guy gets to the upper levels of the minors and sort of, you know, gives him a chance to get up there. Um, but, you know, these minor league free agents, especially, or sorry, the undrafted free agents, especially on the college side, uh, the idea is more these are guys that are good guys to fill out a minor league roster that they got a shot to get up to the upper minors, get on a 40-man roster, maybe reach the big leagues. But, like, I would guess one or two, maybe three max of these undrafted free agents will actually get to like AAA in the big leagues and like up at that level. So you're just kind of looking for like qualities you like. And for Holloway, I think it's a lot of the non-tools things like, you know, pitchability and feel for the game and, you know, coachability and things like that. Right. And organizational depth is still important. Um, And so that's why you have guys like him. Um, I want to talk about, obviously, your book, Future Value. It came out in April, Future Value, the the subhead being the battle for baseball's soul and how teams will find the next superstar. I, 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 this book is so many things. It's, it can be a how-to guide for those who are looking to break into baseball, both as a player or as a scout. Um, I, I think for, for the typical baseball fan who doesn't know what to expect going into this book, I think my, my general overview would be, you see that great player that's, that, that made your team great. Here are all the people involved that you don't know about and all the methods involved that those people take into account when assessing what does what that player will look like? And I, I just thought it's a fantastic in-depth point-by-point overview of of people who are not lauded, you know, area scouts and all that stuff, international scouts that that play a huge role in making sure that these players um, reach their full full potential. So that's my take. But what do you want people to take out of the book? Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to look at it because uh, I think when Eric and I really got down to like you know putting together an outline and what we wanted it to be, we realized it was both breadth and depth, which is maybe not exactly what like the publishing industry wants as like a pitch. I think they want you know give us a story, give us a narrative, you know use two players like Moneyball, like use a handful of players or coaches or scouts or whoever it is to tell us a story about the game. And we're like, ah, this isn't like a how-to book necessarily because that just sounds like a dry like sort of reference manual type thing. Yeah, but it's way more of that than it is like a story. And I think we sort of backed into having some narrative elements because all the scouts ended up like it's a bunch of, you know, 30 year veterans that really know the game that often are not asked for their opinions in the way that we did in stories and things like that. And they all know each other and often had both worked together and worked against each other. And so all their stories ended up like referencing each other. And so I think especially some of them like Donnie Rowland with the Yankees who have you know been both domestic and international and they had multiple people work with them for certain of these stories where like he tells a story when he's a scouting director for the Angels. And we talked to three other people that were on that staff that have all, you know, one was an agent, one is now a scouting director uh, domestically, and then he's a scouting director internationally. Uh, and so it's like that those then became the characters, but our like goal was basically to, you know, people thought when Moneyball came out that scouts were going to get marginalized due to data, which didn't happen. The opposite happened. And then in the last five to 10 years, more five years, uh, all this data came up that gave teams the cover if they wanted to get rid of scouts for sort of cost saving benefits and sort of lean toward data. They had enough data now to make that decision. And so we were trying to explore all the different parts of that, which then can be, you know, read a bunch of different ways in terms of, well, you can think of it through the prism of like a player or a team or a scout or however. And we just sort of explored all the different areas because we wanted to talk about how we got here, what is going on now, where it's going. And it's basically at every level of baseball is affected by this. And so we end up doing like, like I said, like we get the breadth of like all these different sorts of topics, which I guess the, the sort of broad breakdown is, 
we talk about like how you do international and domestic scouting with a bunch of stories, strategies, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's like sort of section one, section two is here's how to scout like a hundred pages, just like, here's what scouts look for. Here's how to learn how to do it. And then section three is sort of about the statistics. So we break it into those three parts, but like that, you know, you obviously get into like how colleges are being squeezed and what they do well, what they don't do well. Like why sometimes their coaches are better than pro coaches. Like it sort of hits everybody, including, you know, agents and, you know, big league managers and front office people and players and, you know, player development as as well as scouting domestic and international. Like it hits all these different areas to try to explain what's going on. And so it ends up being, if you are a casual fan that wants to know a little bit more, there's going to be one or two chapters in here that you just read, you know, the, the intro and the, and the heading, like the title, and you're going to get excited and be like, oh, that's the one I want. I think that's what we sort of got around to is we're like, okay, even though it's not like one thing, almost any fan that might catch themselves watching Sunday Night Baseball is going to be like, oh, of these 12 chapters, like there's two I am really excited about. Mm-hmm. And once I read those, I can probably talk myself into, oh, I actually am excited about this other one now, now that I've read how they broke down this one. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I did not expect like like I expect I, when I read that when I looked at just the cover and the synopsis of what it's going to be, I did not expect this book in the middle to basically have uh, to reach out to players at, like players in high school and say, look, if you're or, or, or getting into high school, here's what you need to do to get noticed. And I did not expect that part of the book to be in there. But again, it just shows how this book is so varied uh, and it has that depth. Start, yeah, you start with scouting and just take one degree away from it in every direction and it ends up covering basically all of baseball. Which yeah. is obviously why people talk about it as, you know, grassroots and the lifeblood of the game because everything starts there and just, you know, how to get better as a high school player. It's like, well, a scout would explain to you how to get better if you asked him. So mm. it's really not that far, even though it seems like a different topic and it's chock full of anecdotes that are great i mean about gene carl stanton or howie kendrick it's, it's just a really fun read two last questions before i let you go kylie thanks so much um the one being with with the looming reduction of about 40 minor league baseball clubs short season clubs most likely uh do you think that will how, how do you think and you change you touched a little bit about this in the book a little bit but how do you think that changes the perception or value of college players going into future drafts I mean, it's going to squeeze high school players. I and mean, we saw it in this draft uh, just because, you know, there's less money, fewer picks, less of a spring. So, and, and then also players have more negotiating leverage with the reduced slots and deferred bonuses. So all of that points toward high school picks being harder to pick just because you have less information, less certainty, and they're going to want the money that they thought they were going to get. They have the leverage to go to college. So obviously they're getting sort of squeezed in that way, getting pushed to college while the college players become, you know, more of a sure thing than the high school players comparatively than if you had a full spring, you know, full bonus slots, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think going forward, it's going to be 20 rounds next year. I would guess 20, maybe even a little less than that will be the status quo going forward, just because as you mentioned, there's going to be fewer minor league teams. So there's Mm -hmm. fewer roster spots you need to fill. So you don't need rounds 21 to 40 anymore. And if you want, you know, five players, some teams are going to want zero. Some are going to want five undrafted free agents. Like just go pick them yourself. Like no problem. Um, so the the minor leagues are going to become sort of less essential as like a um, you know a thing for fans to go to to watch a game um, because there's going to be fewer of those games and then more of those roster spots will be tied up into you know rookie ball teams where there is there's sort of non revenue non fans no concessions like all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you run into the spot where it's, okay, well, then the college player is going to be more important because they are more of a finished product. They can go walk in straight to, the, you know, higher levels of ball. And the college, as I mentioned before, the rookie, or the high school players uh, that would go straight to rookie ball want bigger bonuses to forego college. And so then the amount of development, the amount of data, and the improvement that guys show on campus as college players becomes sort of paramount. And so then the, you know, the programs like Arkansas, Vanderbilt, that consistently are getting top tier players and doing pro level 
development and doing it at the highest you know level. Um, you know their their players are all going to Team USA and the Cape in the summers, and they're playing the SEC in the spring. Um, this becomes even more important. And so in college baseball, you have a lot of you know haves and have nots in terms of money. Obviously, similar to football, but not quite as extreme. Um, and so the the programs that can put together those sort of uh, player development, like essentially what what is Moneyball now in college baseball, which is figuring out how to improve players and getting pro-level instruction from your coaches and having that sort of progressive data-minded thing because every college program can have traditional guys doing traditional stuff. That's not an advantage anymore. Maybe you're better than someone else is, but everyone else is doing similar things. The teams that are embracing analytics are getting ahead because you're doing something other people aren't doing and you're doing it well. And you're also making your players sort of pro style in a way, which the players like. It's easier to recruit. And, you know, obviously pro ball is taking a shine to your players. You get more guys dressed higher. It also makes that easier to recruit. Like it's just sort of a wheel of things. And there are not enough good coaches in college baseball to go around because there's not enough high money um, you know, big money, big market sort of programs in the SEC, ACC, maybe Pac-12 to keep them in college baseball because at those top programs, they're paying more than you make unless you're on a big league coaching staff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you'd rather be in Arkansas than be a minor league pitching coordinator, but you'd probably rather be a minor league pitching coordinator than be the pitching coach at UCF unless you think you're going to get one of those SEC jobs in a year or two. Um, and so the, the sort of competitive thing that the, you know, the mid-majors, I guess, or, you know, just barely second tier type conferences like the UCF is and the spot of is you have to get the exciting young coach that does it a certain way and then hope you can keep it or hope you can get to that, you know, that level of money behind your program, becoming sort of a revenue sport for your program uh, to sort of keep that advantage going. And it's similar to college football. It's tough to get to that level. Like even Michigan, who has like a really good staff and a good bit of money and a big athletic program and they're in a major conference, they are behind the SEC and behind the ACC. And they're like kind of neck and neck with the Pac-12. Um, so if they didn't have like a sort of, you know, revenue-based, um, very successful in the postseason type program with a high-end coach and a good track record, they would just sort of be behind the eight ball even in the Big Ten. Jeez. Hmm. Um, and the last question I have, it's June 16th, and I don't know, Kylie, if June 15th was the worst day for baseball in the past few months, but it wasn't a good day for baseball uh, with the, the meaning of 100%, uh, not meaning 100% anymore. And then we had the, the, the report that there's been un- unknown number of players and staff that have been affected with the coronavirus. Uh, there, there is a, the Major League Baseball is trying to get the players to waive their right to, you know, f- uh, sue them and for a possible breach of contract for the March 26th agreement. Everything looks really dire right now. So for you as a fan, just as a fan, Kylie, what do you think the chances are that we will have any sort of Major League Baseball season this year? I have a friend that uh, I have a friend that texts me this question like every three days. Oh yes. And so I can see that basically all we've texted to each other is him asking me this question and me giving him a percentage. And it's gone as low as like 70% and as high as 96%. And I think the last number I gave him was uh, when this you know most recent news broke. And I think it was like 88. Because hmm. I'm just like, they're, they're still not, not going to play. Um, and like we're close enough that, you know, part of the reason it got down to 70% at some times is like, oh, well, you know, they're not going to play for whatever, another month or two. There might be a second wave. Like part of it was just uncertainty about where the virus would go if it would like get big enough to like preclude anyone from being anywhere. Uh, which it sounds like that will not happen before the games can be played, which it sounds like we're within about a month of that happening. Mm-hmm. Everything you know, sticks to plan, which obviously things don't. But broadly, we're moving in the right direction where the gap between how much money the players want and how much money the owners are putting on the table, it's getting pretty small in terms of you know whether it's a percentage of 
a full pro rata or a full pro rata in how many games. Like, we're within about 20, 30 games of the same number. And it sounds like the owners are fine with doing the full pro rata, but then they want to talk about the, you know, the grievance stuff. And, like, it's still, like, I listened to Jeff Passon do uh, Get Up This Morning. And he was like, I don't think it was a terrible day for baseball. It obviously wasn't great. And the PR and the optics weren't good. But, like, all the stuff he said around, I'm not sure, is, like, basically underlining all the stuff they already agreed on, that they're close on the medical stuff. And it's sort of like, okay, they're just doing some final posturing. And hopefully this, these last couple steps can be done behind closed doors and not, like, aired out in the media and all that kind of thing. And it's super frustrating and super disingenuous. And I think the, the owners are about 90% to blame for this and the players maybe 10% um, in terms of, like, why we're here and the discourse has been so bad and they've waited so long. And, you know, the owners won't open the books, but then they also will just lie about numbers and – uh, you know, everyone's t- saying that everything is a bad faith negotiation because that's the word you have to prove when you go into, uh, you know, the legal sort of arbitration proceedings about the grievance, which nobody wants to go into, but everyone has to position themselves as though they might. So there's a bunch. And then also, like, we have a CBA negotiation coming up in, like, a little over a year. And so they're treating this like a CBA negotiation when all they should be doing is saying, okay, we disagree over $400 million. Let's meet in the middle. Let's get some games going. And then we have two years almost to work over the CBA negotiation instead of doing it in public in slow motion, <laughs> killing all your positive PR, delaying the amount of game. Like they're doing it all wrong. But at some point from the players association angle, if the owners were always going to do this, you rolling over is not a good solution. And you trying to match them tit for tat and play the same game they're playing is obviously bad for the game. But at some point, would you rather just roll over and take it? Or would, would you rather sort of fight and, tooth and nail and like finally get at least like a draw when you've kept losing all of these different negotiations over the years so it's like at a spot where it's like it just kind of is the way it had to happen given the sort of state of play between these two sides but it's just disappointing that it had to happen this way and that they got to this point in terms of the the state of play between them and like the, the relationship and the way that they're just so distrustful and I think that goes back, you know, decades and decades. So even I don't like fully understand it, but mm-hmm. it's like, this is just, this is just how these two sides do business in a game that is sort of, you know, losing, if not, not growing popularity. And they continue doing stuff like this that continues to like underline that problem. And they both sides like off the record will basically say like, yes, we realize that this is a bad PR look and it's not helping spread the game, but we think this amount of money is worth doing that for in the short term and we'll be able to recoup it in the long term. And my point is uh, both sides don't seem to know how to market the game in the long term. So how could you possibly know if this is worth it or not? <laughs> I, if, if it is just really bad PR and, and, and that's all it is. And maybe this is just a stall tactic uh, and we end up getting baseball. It's great. But like you said, that in the moment, it just looks bad. Bad. The optics are awful, um, but I I, I, lo- I enjoy the positivity. And eighty eight percent sounds sounds pretty good. Um, Kylie, thank you so much. And we uh, I would say one, one more thing I would add. Yeah, I was talking to an, an agent in the draft about the, not this exact topic, a topic like it, and he was basically outlining to me how they weren't being super transparent with every team about information about their player that they were trying to funnel into certain teams and not other teams. And I was like, "What's the negative?" He's like, "Well, some teams think our player is a diva." Even though it's like sort of, you know, we're telling him we would like to do it this way to make sure you get the most money you can and go to these picks and not these picks. And so we're not telling the teams with the lesser money, um, you know, stuff about you that would make them comfortable to take you so that they won't take you. And he was like, the negative is some of the teams think he's, think, think he's a diva, but they're not going to pick him. And I go, yeah. And at some point there are players that have done this in the past. This happens every year that, you know, have done what could seem to be diva stuff if you're one of the teams that is not going to get the player. Does anyone talk about that even six months after he's drafted? And he was like, no. I'm like, do you even remember all the players that have done this in the past? 
And he was like, no, not really. Like, it becomes a conversation leading up to the draft, the weeks after the draft, and then if the player is good, no one talks about it again. If he's a total bust, in which case it doesn't matter, people might bring it up and be like, oh, it's because he was a diva. I know because of how he handled the draft. And I think the union and the owners look at it the same way, where they're just like, yeah, yeah, this is terrible. We get it. We're, like, leading the news every day with how terrible we are. But once the game is back and there's a bunch of dingers and a bunch of, you know, bat flips and guys are throwing 100 and we got the playoffs and we're, like, the premier sport for some stretch of the summer – no one's going to remember this until we get to the CBA, and it's all about that again because that's the only thing that's happening. But like, at least we're in the news and people are talking about us. And when the game's going, everyone's going to forget about it. And like, they're probably right. Um, but I guess the issue is more a 13 year old that is hearing this, but then not watching the games is now never going to give them a chance because all they hear is a bunch of rich people bickering at each other. Yeah. That, that's the thing that I don't think they're factoring in because they're looking at you know, did the TV ratings go up or down? This year, after all this bickering, they're probably going to be about the same. But the problem is 15 years from now, which and that's the thing that neither one of them, I think, even really cares about and also doesn't understand. Absolutely. And Major League Baseball is this summer's best dark comedy. Uh, and, uh, and and like I said, we have a few weeks here until there's probably more of a deadline. And hopefully something has worked out before then. Kylie, thanks so much. And uh, if we have a college baseball season next year, I hope to see you at uh, John Uliano Park. Oh, yeah. No, I'll, uh, I'll be there. I was probably set to be there. If the season went four more weeks, I probably would have been there. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Kylie. So there's Kylie McDaniel. And you see, you heard there at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the interview, uh, you know, I asked him uh, his opinion on whether or not we will play games. And, and Kylie, you know, to his credit, was, was pretty optimistic as I was sort of very doom and gloom. And even since that interview was held, which was back on Tuesday morning, uh, we've had some positive developments, as we mentioned at the top of the show in Major League Baseball. So certainly we hope there's something there. But I, I thought talking to Kylie was fascinating. It was great to, you know, obviously get his take on Jeffrey Hakinson and Trevor Holloway, but also just talk about his career, his pathway from UCF to, you know, working, at, you know, with the Yankees as like a summer intern during his days at UCF, uh, scouting, basically learning, you know, in some ways learning how to scout by attending UCF baseball games because, you know, they would always have good teams or they would have good teams coming in to play them at Jay Bergman Field. So, and then obviously his road with, you know, oh yeah, when he was with the Yankees, you know, his boss was Billy Epler, who's now the GM of the, of the uh, Los Angeles Angels. And his, he had another boss uh, who was the GM of the Philadelphia Phillies. I believe it was Matt, Matt Clintac. And then he had another boss who became a GM as well, John Coppolella, John Coppolella, who was the GM of the Braves. So it's amazing how you sort of, it's about who you know. And I think, <laughs> you know, Kylie was blessed with 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 finding the right people and knowing the right people but he also as he mentioned in the interview uh worked really 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 hard to get where he is you know talking about driving from north carolina to uh go you know north carolina to miami on one night uh to cover a game going to the dominican republic to scout and going there on his own um just just because you know because he wanted to go scout some guys um it's it's a fantastic i thought it's a fantastic story and then like i said in the interview his book is fantastic too for anybody for any baseball fan who wants to know not just why teams are good but what it takes behind the scenes in terms of this the people and the methods it takes to really building uh you know a great player um so anyway yeah i'm really i really appreciate kylie coming on spending 40 minutes with us and talking not only ucf but baseball in general it was it was really really uh rewarding to do that the book is called future value the battle for baseball soul and how teams will find the next Superstar. He, uh, uh, Kylie, wrote it with um, Eric Longenhagen of uh, Fangraphs. You can follow Kylie at Kylie McD, Kylie MCD 
on Twitter. And as always, a proud UCF Knight. So we're so thankful to him uh, for spending time with us. Pretty friggin' amazing, man. Wow. I mean... Well, the journey is amazing, Murph, and you did a great job in the interview, and, and you even talked about finding the players, and I thought what was – I mean, there was a lot of fascinating parts in the interview, but one of them you guys touched on, with the way the draft is going and the and the, the, the minor league baseball you know, being eliminated the way it is right now, it looks like, where we're headed, and you guys talked about how college baseball could have a bigger role now where teams go to and draft more college baseball guys to find talent now than they did, say, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, and for a number of reasons. Obviously, with with fewer minor league teams, that means minor, that means fewer spots as well. So you want more polished talent, uh, and and so you, you kind of side toward college players. Also, you know, with high school players, they're, because they're high school and they can still go to college if they want, they're still going to want the money. Uh, like, let's say if they're drafted in the top five rounds, like they're still going to want their draft slot money. To come to the pros, otherwise they have something to fall back on. They can go, they can go to college and play a couple years there. Um, but with college players, you have a little more leverage if you're the team, and, and you can you can sort of bid them down and and, and get them at a cheaper price. So college players, you know, can be they're they're cheaper, they're more polished, and, and so yeah, I think you'll see more value on college players uh, in the draft, even when it's extended to 20 rounds, uh, as Kylie said, that will probably be in the future. Um, and we, we even saw that really this year with the five-round draft. Like, I don't think that, you know, if it's a five-round draft, I think Jeffrey Hakinson uh, is a guy who, as Kylie said, is more valuable this year because you want to spend a pick, that pick, when you only have five of them, you want to spend that pick on someone that you know is already kind of ready. And, yeah, you got to work with him a little bit, but but he's a he's, he's pretty much close to a finished product. And so uh, he's a guy who had more – more value, more demand than he would have in other years. And I think you'll see that going forward with other college players in the draft. That's good for college baseball. And, and, you know, and I always wonder that, you know, like we were talking about with the, with the professional baseball agreement, what's going to happen? Will this place more of an emphasis on college baseball? Um, And it looks to be like that's going to be the case. And that means, you know, hopefully we'll see, um, you know, a lot more attention paid to uh, not just college baseball in general, but the American and, uh, and UCF in particular. So, um, well, and a credit to college baseball because they made changes so that Major League Baseball can easier scout college baseball. I mean, they, it was almost impossible to scout a hitter 10 years ago with the aluminum bats the way they were. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, since then they've controlled the bats, among other things. So it's it's closer to what, you know, Major League Baseball looks like for, and, you know, and Kylie talked about it with Murph about programs, I think, in the SEC and then invest in baseball. I mean, it's high level. Um, so I, I do think college it's good news for college baseball and good news for UCF potentially, Murph. Now, to your credit, Murph, you said last week, Trevor Holloway, you expected him to sign uh, more than likely, and he did. He signed with the Yankees. You wrote about it, uh, you know, and obviously Kylie broke it down. It's on com. But your quick thoughts, Trevor Holloway officially to the Yankees. And overall now, now, I mean, maybe there could be a surprise signing down the road. But overall now, your big picture look for the UCF roster here in 21 now with these departures with Holloway and Hankinson gone and Sheridan transferred and, and so so forth. Overall, UCF looks in good good shape here, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's kind of what they expected, right? I mean, Greg Lovelady said a couple weeks ago they expected to lose one or two players to the draft of free agency, and that's exactly what happened. And so I think they've planned for this. I think having uh, a pitching staff that, that's, that still has Colton Gordon coming back really helps so you kind of pair him with Hunter Pat Hunter Patterson 
uh, as a sophomore, and then they pick up A.J. Jones from Jacksonville. That could sort of be your three-man rotation. But then you would also, you know, you also bring back Jackson Clare. You bring back Jol- Dalton Wingo. You bring back Jeffrey Pena. Um, I think all of those guys, you know, at it, it's, it's some, you know, it, um, in some measure, you kind of were wondering whether they were going to all return. Well, they're all returning. And, you know, you knew you were going to lose uh, Holloway pretty much anyway. And so, I mean, there really weren't any major unexpected losses for UCF. You know, obviously, like you said, something could come up. I believe we still have about six more weeks for undrafted free agents to actually sign with a team. So certainly something could come up. Um, but right now, yeah, UCF looks to be in pretty decent shape uh, coming out of the draft and going into 2021. I think it was an excellent pickup for the Yankees. Well, like I said, I, what I liked about what I liked about <laughs> Kylie's breakdown, it, it's just so realistic, right? Like we as fans look through so many things through rose-colored glasses about how good players are, and Kylie's here saying, "Look, maybe three of these guys will end up ever making it to the major leagues, if that." And so, you know, these guys are drafted not because teams think they can really get them to the major leagues, but because they think they can be good organizational depth, and they need those kind of guys. Like if Trevor Holloway turns out to be a quality Double A pitcher. That does not mean that his career failed. That I mean, that, that, that is a big help to the organization because not only is he, you know, maybe he's happy what he's doing, but he's also giving hitters who are on their way up a good look. And maybe he's not good enough to get there, but he's good enough to help other other players, pitchers or opposing hitters, give them a good look before they ascend to the major leagues. And so that's important. Yeah, solid. And I think a lot of people forget that about you know what the you you know what goes into the composition of an organization in order to make that happen and i think that's always key so i'm glad that he brought broke that down i'm glad we had that on. that was a great get so thank you guys for pulling it off and thanks to kylie for uh spending some time uh with us and talking about it so all right uh let's wrap this thing up we're moving uh forward with our uh we're calling it now eric we finally figured out it's the ucf 250 right the that's right the uh 250 greatest ucf knights of all time Female and male athletes, uh, coaches, uh, and uh, what was uh, what was the, what was the other category that we had? Head coaches and assistant coaches, Head coaches alongside and assistant. male and female athletes. That's right, head coaches and assistant coaches. So, um, hoping that everyone will uh, get a chance to look at those as we as we pump them out here and there. Um, we also got the top ten games of the year coming up as well, and we'll just be keeping an eye on what else, uh, whatever comes down the pike, Eric. So. Um. Yeah, I hear you've been getting some feedback on this uh, on uh, on some of your lists there, Elo. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, former players have uh, chimed in and uh, fans have chimed in, both positive and negative. That's the beauty. People just get a uh, excited about ranking stuff and male, female, and that's awesome. And just try to really, my whole goal is just to acknowledge some of the athletes we've had and some of the coaches as we'll do that as well. And. Uh, so I think that'll be kind of fun for us to follow in the coming days, weeks, uh, if you will. And, you know, while we have, we're in this break, if you will, with no sports and no UCF sports, kind of look back. I mean, we've had a lot of great athletes across the board in sports, and uh, it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure it'll get more heated as the numbers go down in the rankings. And <laughs> well, that'll be, so I look forward to that. I've got my mute button ready on Twitter, but uh, no, <laughs> um, should be should be a lot of fun. And that's going to be looking forward to and. Uh, one of the people that actually I was able to reach, uh, heard from is our friend, uh, Mr. Ben Lively, who's currently in rehab in Korea. And, uh, who knows, you know, we might take that plane that, uh, Rob Menford used to go to Arizona, allegedly with to Tony Clark. We might just use that Murph to go to Korea and interview Lively there. That'd be great. If any way I can get out of America right now, it'd be really great. <laughs> 
Let's be honest. It's it's been bad. <laughs> it's, so it's we hope we're efforting. Uh, could be a first in the history of UCF of possibly doing an international interview. Although we've done it, no, we did that with Tristan Spurlock, right? When he That's was right. He was down in Mexico in the during their fight during that uh, uh, f- during the the Mexican League finals too. <laughs> so. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, no, Black Eagle Benaret. We're the international show. We we're the only UCF show that goes international. It'll be yeah. fascinating if we can talk to Ben, only because I've never really held a formal interview with anybody at like three in the morning. And so I'd really kind of look forward to that. If that happens. Oh, well, <laughs> Ch- uh, knock that one off the, uh, <laughs> off the bucket list. If it happens. <laughs> great. So, all right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at UCF underscore banner at facebook.com slash black and gold banner at, and of course, black and gold banner We are, the home of UCF Sports That's on right. the SB Nation. Read Murph stuff. Network. Murph's read, got a lot of stuff. Read, too, read, like don't just read stuff. Murph. Read everybody. Read Elo. Yeah, read right. me. Eric has, read Eric has a lot of stuff too. Jeez. Yeah, but I mean, you, Murph wrote about Kylie McDaniel's thoughts on Holloway, and of course there, and and Hakinson. He's got his Greg Love Lady exclusive there. I mean, we got a lot of different stuff. We got rankings. We got a lot of great stuff going on. Yeah. So it's even though we're in a. Uh, even though we're still, you know, in the middle of COVID, we've got plenty of uh, content for uh, content coming out for you. So uh, don't forget to, uh, if you want to, uh, actually, you know what I want to do? Last thing I want to do before we go is uh, if you got any questions that we want to ask, you know, we haven't done any uh, listener uh, listener mail or any of that. Um, send us a uh, send us a message either at blackandgoldbanneret at gmail.com, blackandgoldbanneret at gmail.com. Or send us a DM uh, at, on uh, Twitter. Uh, or, or actually, no, you can just add, add us on Twitter. UCF underscore Banneret. We're happy to uh, uh, answer some questions. Hopefully we'll get uh, we'll get some good ones for everybody. And uh, be able to talk yes, about what's going on. Yes, feel free to criticize my rankings there on that, on that platform so that Jeff can read it and then I'll just... Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, take, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up. For uh, Eric and Brian, I'm Jeff. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Black and Gold Banner at Podcast.